the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, about seven minutes after four o'clock. Imagine that. We're starting the show at seven minutes after four o'clock, just like uh, last week. Anyway, um, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And we're glad that you're with us. Today, we're going to talk with Don Everts. He is the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. That's coming up in our five o'clock hour. So we'll uh, look forward to that. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, in fact, the last couple of days' headlines. After several calls to bring the Senate back from recess to consider gun violence legislation following last weekend's mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he and President Trump are considering several options, including background checks, and they're anxious for an outcome when lawmakers return to Capitol Hill in the fall. McConnell won't cut short the Senate vacation, as some lawmakers and 2020 presidential candidates have asked. But he told a Kentucky radio station on Thursday of last week that Trump called him and they've discussed several ideas, including background checks and red flag laws that allow authorities to seize firearms from someone deemed a threat to themselves or others. The president, he said, is anxious to get an outcome. And so am I. End quote. Rush Limbaugh, meanwhile, has urged the president not to trust Democrats to come to any compromise. And the FBI continued to use British ex-spy Christopher Steele's unverified Trump dossier in multiple Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, court warrant application renewals, even after the Bureau formally documented Steele's anti-Trump bias following the 2016 presidential election. Records uh, show the partially redacted documents first acquired by Judicial Watch also revealed that top Justice Department official Bruce Orr, maintained contact with Steele for at least six months after the Ste- after Steele rather, was fired by the FBI for unauthorized media contacts in November of 2016. The records further confirm that Orr knew of Steele's anti-Trump bias before the 2016 election. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham, speaking to Sean Hannity on Fox News, said on Thursday... And former Vice President Joe Biden, the 2020 Democratic primary frontrunner, made another gaffe on Thursday when he told a crowd in Iowa that poor kids are just as bright and talented as white kids. The temptation to editorialize is nearly overwhelming. Biden was who famously directed supporters to a wrong number during last month's debate and misidentified the sites of recent mass shootings, quickly corrected himself after some applause from the crowd at the Asian and Latino coalition pack and finished wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. Uh, He's the same guy who said uh, Barack Obama was just a clean, good-looking black guy. It's been a shaky week for Biden. He seems to mix up his words while on the stump in Iowa at the state fair on Thursday. A few days ago, he mistakenly referred to the shootings in El Paso and Texas and Dayton, Ohio, as the tragic events in Houston today and also in Michigan the day before. He later corrected himself, according to a pool report. He also described in some detail... Uh, uh, leaving the um, the White House in uh, order to visit uh, the kids who were part of the the shooting, and uh, 
in 2018. A Republican bill that would increase penalties for throwing water on police officers is facing some initial Democrat opposition months before it could even be taken up. GOP lawmakers in New York are introducing a bill that would make throwing or spraying water or any other substance on a police officer a Class E felony and punishable by up to four years in jail. Republicans in the state's assembly were angered by viral videos of cops being drenched by groups of local residents, sometimes minors, with NYPD officers apparently feeling unable to respond and walking away. Police have since made a number of arrests related to the cases, but the incidents have sparked national attention, with the president calling them a total disgrace last month. And an autopsy has been performed on Jeffrey Epstein, but officials have not released the cause of death because a medical examiner needs more information. Meanwhile, the high-security correctional facility where the politically connected financier died in an apparent suicide has fallen under scrutiny. Correctional officers who worked in a special unit inside the New York City jail that housed Epstein had worked extreme overtime shifts to compensate for staffing shortages, according to reports. On Sunday, the Associated Press cited an unnamed source in a Sunday report that said the Metropolitan Correctional Center's special housing unit was staffed with a single guard working a fifth straight day of overtime and another who was working mandatory overtime. The FBI and the Justice Department's Inspector General's office have devoted additional resources toward investigating Epstein's death. The New York City medical examiner performed an autopsy on Sunday but said she needed more information before making a determination. Attorney General William Barr is taking a hands-off, hands-on role in the investigation, according to the Wall Street Journal, and has asked the Deputy FBI Director David Bowditch to brief the Deputy Attorney General every three hours. Epstein had been placed on suicide watch after he was found unconscious last month with bruising on his neck, but he was taken off the watch at the end of July. The Justice Department was told Epstein would be monitor- monitored rather by a guard every half an hour and would be housed with a cellmate. An official with knowledge into the investigation told the AP. However, the cellmate recently had been transferred, apparently hours before, allowing him to be housed alone, a violation of jail protocol, officials told the New York Times. At the time of his death, Epstein was facing 45 years in prison on sex trafficking charges, accused of sexually abusing dozens of young girls between 2002 and 2005. Jeffrey Epstein's death reportedly has raised the pressure on prosecutors to pursue charges against associates who enabled his alleged sexual abuse and trafficking. Investigators have a new focus on people who allegedly helped Epstein recruit young women for sex trafficking, the Wall Street Journal reports. And federal prosecutors in Manhattan have vowed to continue their investigation and growing new evidence could lead to other targets. Dozens of people have been injured and two have been killed in Chicago in 33 separate incidents over the weekend where shots were fired, according to police. As of late Sunday, at least 40 people have been wounded in the gunfire since early Saturday morning, according to police reports. Uh, This weekend's incidents follow Chicago's worst weekend of gun violence, where seven people were killed and 52 were injured between the second and fourth of this month. And counselor to President Kelly uh, to the president, Kellyanne Conway, said Sunday that while President Trump may tweet about Joe Biden as if he is sure to get the Democratic presidential nomination, she is not concerned at all about who Trump's opponent is. In a conversation, Conway said that the Democratic Party's hard push uh, to 
Uh, the left will make it easy for Trump to be reelected in 2020. She also said it's far too early to tell who Democrats will ultimately select, given that there's still 23, 24 of them running. But she did note that many of the 2020 hopefuls are polling low when the campaign reaches the general election stage. However, Conway said Democratic nominees will have to answer for the party's more extreme policies. Whoever it is, they really have to defend socialism now, she said. We're going to continue uh, looking at some of the recent headlines, but we need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Don Everts. He is the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. A member of the U.S. men's fencing team staged a national anthem protest at the Pan Am Games, saying we must call for change. Race Imboden and two teammates were winners of gold in a team foil competition at the Garden at the Games rather in Lima, Peru on Friday, and he took a knee on the podium at the medal ceremony. His teammates uh, both stood for the anthem. We must call for change, Imboden said afterwards on Twitter. This week, I am honored to represent Team USA at the Pan Am Games, taking home gold and bronze. My pride, however, has been cut short by the multiple shortcomings of the country I hold so dear to my heart, he said. Racism, gun control, mistreatment of immigrants, the political protest could lead to disciplinary actions by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, By the way, athletes sign a document uh, indicating that they will not stage any kind of political uh, protest uh, during the games or during the ceremony. Universal Pictures on Saturday canceled plans to release The Hunt, a thriller about a group of globalist elites killing people for sport after two recent mass shootings that left a total of 31 people dead in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, the New York Times reports. According to Todd Starnes, the grotesque film depicted elitists hunting and slaughtering supporters of President Trump. The script also explains that one of the characters was stalked and hunted like prey for being pro-life. And this was uh, considered a satire and suitable entertainment. As California Democrats try to keep the president off the state's Republican primary ballot next year, Republicans in other states are pondering plans to cancel or modify their own 2020 presidential nominating contests and essentially affirm the party's support for Mr. Trump before voters head to the polls. Hmm. Comedian Bill Maher on Friday said he really wished there was another economic recession, arguing such an event would ruin President Trump's chances of winning re-election. According to The Hill, last December, our own Mark Alexander, they write, uh, warned caught in the Democrats' political crossfire are tens of millions of American workers and their families whose jobs and income prospects will fall victim to the Democrats' politically induced recession, the direct results of having thrown economic confidence under the bus in order to attack Trump. And a Northern California city has denied a request to hold a so-called straight pride rally at a park. City spokesman Thomas Reeves said the permit's request was denied over safety concerns because the group lost its liability insurance and the park's department determined the event wasn't consistent with park use. However, Reeves says the city would allow the rally at a downtown plaza if the group proves it has insurance by Tuesday. And a federal judge in Virginia ruled in, on Friday rather, in favor of a transgender former student, concluding that a school board's transgender restroom ban was discriminatory. The former student was forced to use the girls' restroom or a private restroom and was prohibited from using the men's room as a result of the school's policy, despite the fact that he underwent chest reconstruction surgery and hormone therapy as a part of his transition. I'm not sure if 
we're talking about a biological male or female, but that's um, where it stands. A proposed ethnic studies curriculum developed for California public high schools has ignited outrage uh, over uh, its shabby treatment of Jewish Americans and Israel, leading to fears that students could soon receive a crash course in anti-Semitism. And a Las Vegas man who reportedly wanted to shoot up area synagogues and a gay bar has been charged in federal court for possessing bomb-making materials. Connor, uh, Connor Climo, 23, a security guard, had allegedly been communicating with a violent white supremacist group called the Adam Waffen Division. According to the criminal complaint, uh, the group's uh, encourages attacks on federal government, including critical infrastructure, minorities, homosexuals and Jews. Well, in the final days of Jeffrey Epstein's life, the high flying financier who had once counted royalty and presidents among his friends was largely flying under the radar, communicating little from eight foot square sail in the New York federal lockup. He was grounded following his July arrest on sex trafficking charges that had dogged him for decades, charges that now threatened to keep him locked up for 45 years. For the 66-year-old, the equivalent of a life sentence. He mostly kept to himself, according to federal source, connected with the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. He was polite, didn't say much. And then sometime in the early hours of Saturday morning, he alone in a special housing cell separate from the rest of the prisoners with extra monitoring and security was apparently able to once again outmaneuver the justice system, taking his own life before facing his alleged victims in court. Epstein's shocking death in federal custody has opened a, a veritable Pandora's box of questions. First and foremost, where has his um, demise left the legal case against him? With regard to the criminal case, sir, a law presumes him innocent, says the former assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles, David Katz. We will not have Epstein's side of the story. While that may not be uh, may not have exonerated him and might exculpate um, some alleged accomplices, the U.S. attorney in Manhattan has declared that Others who may have conspired with him will continue to be closely investigated. But according to Katz, who didn't work on the Epstein case, anyone charged will likely claim that Epstein alive would uh, have cleared him or her. And there were deprived of Epstein's testimony for and providing the material on behalf on their behalf, rather, because of the government's negligence. So that will weaken any case against them. At the same time, however, alleged accomplices may also face more time under the microscope without Epstein to shield them from view. A former sex crimes assistant at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office underscored that a brighter light will now likely shine on the others named in the Epstein circle and any possible criminal proceedings against them. Meanwhile, we're told that the FBI um, agents there are searching his uh, home um, in the Virgin Isles, uh, combing that with a fine tooth comb, attempting to find uh, any evidence that may lead to further co-conspirators. William Barr had a message that was declared earlier today with that uh, in mind. The attorney general said today that he was appalled by Jeffrey Epstein's apparent suicide over the weekend, but urged that the millionaire pedophile's co-conspirators should not rest easy. This sex trafficking case was very important to the Department of Justice and to me personally, Barr said during a speech before the National Fraternal Order of Police in New Orleans. Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. Well, as we mentioned, Epstein died in the early hours of Saturday morning. He was reportedly not on suicide watch, even though he is believed to have attempted suicide more than two weeks ago. 
According to news reports, there is no video of Epstein in his jail cell, and the correctional officials tasked with monitoring him had worked overtime. A New York City uh, medical examiner said that more uh, time was needed to determine his cause of death. On Friday, a federal judge in New York unsealed thousands of pages of documents from a lawsuit against Epstein. The documents allege that he and his longtime assistant operated an international sex trafficking ring of underage girls. Several well-known international figures are identified in the documents, including former Democratic uh, New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, former Democratic Senator George Mitchell, and Prince Andrew. Barr ordered an FBI investigation of the circumstances of Epstein's death. He also directed the Justice Department Inspector General's office to investigate Metropolitan Correctional Center handling of that of uh, Epstein as well. I was appalled, and indeed, the whole department was, and frankly, angry to learn that the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. And, of course, lots of uh, conspiracy theories have emerged as a result of his death as well. In other news, House Democrats have used the phrase constitutional crisis to describe Donald Trump's presidency, but it turns out they may be creating one of their own. The House Judiciary Committee leadership is currently at odds over the essential question of whether or not an impeachment investigation is underway. Republicans are pointing to precedent and congressional rules and arguing that traditionally, first, the House should approve such a move, which has not yet happened. Yet some Democrats claim the Constitution says otherwise in arguing they've already launched the impeachment process. So have they or haven't they? There are no clear answers. The confusion underscores the division inside Congress over every aspect of this explosive political step, which Speaker Nancy Pelosi had urged against months ago. Yet, despite Pelosi's repeated warnings, Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler told CNN last week that formal impeachment proceedings are underway. Not so, said Representative Doug Collins of Georgia, the committee's ranking Republican. House President requires the full House approve a resolution authorizing the Judicial Committee to begin an impeachment inquiry, he wrote in a Sunday op Um, op-ed for the Los Angeles Times. Otherwise, any judiciary chairman could charge into an impeachment inquiry with only limited partisan support. The confusion over what is actually happening isn't limited to partisan squabbles, as Democrats appear to be at odds as well. When Nadler filed a petition in D.C. federal court in late July, seeking the disclosure of secret grand jury materials from the former special counsel Robert Mueller, And his investigation, some Democrats indicated this marked the beginning of an actual impeachment investigation. We are crossing the threshold, Representative Veronica Escobar said at the time. When you think about the mode we were operating under before, it was an oversight function. This is now crossing the threshold with this filing and officially entering into an examination into whether or not to recommend articles of impeachment. I just want to make that point clear End quote. Representative Eric Swalwell also said this was the first time the committee was sending a telegraph to the court that one of the remedies we have is impeachment. This is an impeachment investigation on whether we should introduce articles of impeachment to Congress, he said. Well, that same day, however, Nancy Pelosi said we will proceed when we have what we need to proceed, not one day sooner. Well, Pelosi, uh, Pelosi rather, has opposed impeaching President Trump as it could end up backfiring against Democrats heading into the 2020 elections. Collins cited the investigations of President Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, as well as congressional rules 
rules to support his argument that only a vote from the full House can permit the Judiciary Committee to begin an impeachment investigation. But University of Texas law professor Steve Vladek, he said that the House's formal approval of an impeachment investigation is not the only way to go about it. The Constitution does not require formal approval of an impeachment investigation before the House or a committee thereof is allowed to conduct one. Vladek said, thus, although the House formally approved such an investigation for President Clinton, there are plenty of other examples of impeachment investigations that were initiated after nothing more than the introduction of an impeachment resolution by a single member and referral of that resolution to the House Judiciary Committee. Such a resolution was introduced by Representative Al Green in July, but the House shot it down, 332 to 95, to table it. Escobar, along with Representatives um, Mary Scanlon, uh, David uh, Ciceline and Pamela J. Paul uh, argued in a piece for The Atlantic on the day Nadler filed his petition that neither method of initiating impeachment proceedings was required. Not only did they say that an impeachment investigation is already underway, they claimed they did not need approval by a House vote to do it. So there seems to be some question as to whether or not an impeachment proceeding has begun, whether or not one can begin without uh, the House approval and whether or not one should be pursued by the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 31 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there seems to be some chaos around the subject of impeachment. Politicals, they can't agree on whether or not they've actually launched the process to oust Donald Trump and, for that matter, what the process uh, is that's required by the Constitution. Well, while many people believe that beginning an impeachment investigation can start only with a vote of the full House of Representatives, this is not true. Uh, some have written, uh, Representative Mary Gay uh, Scanlon, uh, Representative Celine um, and Pramila Jayapal, Uh, They say that um, Article 1 authorizes the House Judiciary Committee to begin the process. Article 1 of the Constitution is the source of the House impeachment power, but it doesn't go into detail regarding the process. Representative Ted Deutsch, a Democrat out of Florida, confused things further, indicating that uh, in an August 1st piece for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, that an impeachment inquiry has uh, been going on since the 4th of March. And he cited committee powers, not the Constitution, as support for why it's permitted. In the past, a resolution directing the Judiciary Committee to consider impeachment was needed to grant the committee additional subpoena authority and financial resources, he wrote. But times have changed. In 2015, Republican leaders gave committee chairs broad subpoena power. No vote to authorize an impeachment inquiry is necessary end quote. Well, the next day, however, the office rather of Representative Salud Carbajal in uh, California issued a press release stating that he calls for an impeachment inquiry, implying that one did not already exist. He was among numerous Democrats to back calls for an impeachment inquiry in the wake of the Mueller testimony, something more than half of House Democrats now support, making the definition of what constitutes such an inquiry all the more important. Well, the confusion could uh, very well come to uh, Something of a head as a result of Nadler's petition. According to the federal rules of civil procedure, grand jury material such as the information Democrats are seeking must remain secret, with judges only allowed to disclose it in certain um, outlined 
uh, situations. One of those ex- um, exceptions is for judicial proceedings, and court precedent has deemed impeach- impeachment investigations to fall under that category. And while Nadler and other Democrats are now claiming they're in the middle of such an investigation, if they haven't taken the required steps to do so, the court may rule against them, and they may decide if uh, the proceedings have already begun or if they need to take another tack to start them. Well, the House Judiciary Committee took a decisive step toward impeachment proceedings by filing a lawsuit in federal court to force former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify before the panel. McGahn's testimony is essential to an ongoing impeachment inquiry, congressional lawyers wrote in court filings on Wednesday of last week. Since he is the primary witness to the president's alleged attempt to obstruct former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, the Judiciary Committee is conducting oversight and hearings, including assessing whether to exercise its Article One power to recommend articles of impeachment against the president, including those articles already referred to the Judiciary Committee and considering significant remedial legislation and amendments to existing laws. Congressional lawyers wrote, but the Judiciary Committee cannot fulfill these constitutional responsibilities without full access to critical evidence, including testimony from McCann, who was a key witness to many of those egregious obstructive acts described in the special counsel's report. They added, though House Speaker Pelosi and other senior congressional Democrats, they've rebuffed efforts to impeach the president for political reasons. The lawsuit is a confirmation that articles of impeachment are a live possibility. McGahn features prominently in the special counsel's report. Where alleged obstruction of justice is concerned, the special counsel said McGahn resisted Trump's orders to dismiss Mueller for possible conflicts of interest in June of 2017. McGahn later refused to publicly repudiate press accounts of the president's efforts to fire the special counsel, according to the report. House Democrats issued a subpoena compelling McGahn to testify and produce certain records relating to Mueller's investigation. At the Trump administration's direction, McGahn said he would not comply with the subpoena in May. The White House said the requested records implicate interests generally covered by the executive privilege. Well, the administration has generally directed current and former aides not to cooperate with Democratic-led investigations. That consistent record of obstruction makes a judicial order requiring McGahn uh, his appearance all the more necessary, Democrats say. The committee's lawsuit reads, and I'm quoting, the executive branch has taken the position that, under separation of powers principles, Congress may not constitutionally compel the president's senior advisors to testify about their official duties. Under this theory, certain presidential advisors are absolutely immune from appearing before Congress to testify, even if Congress can demonstrate a compelling need for the information. This absolute immunity, in quotes, uh, doctrine has no grounding in the Constitution, any statutes or case law, and never has been accepted by any court. Well, we'll see what happens moving forward as whether or not an impeachment proceeding has officially begun. Um, members of the House are certainly moving, particularly in the Judiciary Committee, are moving in that direction with earnest. Former FBI uh, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe sued the Justice Department and the FBI on Thursday for his firing last year, which he says was politically motivated retribution for failing to support the president. In the complaint, McCabe accuses the Justice Department and FBI of unlawful retaliation for his refusal to pledge allegiance to a single man, a reference to President Trump. 
On March 16, 2018, then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions fired McCabe on the recommendation of the Justice Department Inspector General and the FBI Office of Professional Responsibility. Both had recommended that McCabe be fired for a lack of candor during multiple interviews regarding leaks he authorized to the media. McCabe authorized a subordinate, Lisa Page, to speak with a Wall Street Journal reporter in October of 2016 about the state of the Clinton investigation. McCabe hoped to remain in his job at least until he would qualify for full retirement benefits, but Sessions brought down the hammer one day before his official retirement date. The lawsuit alleges that Trump is responsible and accountable for the Justice Department and the FBI actions. Trump purposefully and intentionally caused the unlawful actions of defendants and other executive branch subordinates to that led to the plaintiff's um, demotion and purported termination, McCabe alleges. It was Trump's unconstitutional plan and scheme to discredit and remove DOJ and FBI employees who were deemed to be his partisan opponents because they were not politically loyal to him. End quote. McCabe's lawsuit comes just two days after former FBI agent Peter Strzok. He sued the FBI and Justice Department over his own firing. Strzok was fired on the 9th of August in 2018 over anti-Trump text messages on an FBI phone that he sent while working on both the Hillary Clinton email investigation and Trump Russia probe. Strzok uh, claims he was fired due to political pressure from the president. He also claimed that his messages, which he sent on an FBI-issued device, were private in nature. He's seeking uh, reinstatement to his job and back pay. McCabe's lawsuit goes through the timeline of his tumultuous tenure as FBI's number two, including in the aftermath of James Comey's firing as the FBI director. We've also learned that the FBI kept using the Steele dossier for FISA applications despite documenting the ex-spy's bias, according to documents. And keep in mind, there's an ongoing investigation into that aspect of um, how the investigation into the president, his administration and campaign began. Well, according to the latest report, the FBI formally uh, documented the apparent anti-Trump bias of the British ex-spy Christopher Steele shortly after the November 2016 presidential election. Yet, despite the red flags, continued to use his unverified dossier in multiple Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court warrant application renewals, According to records, the partially redacted documents first obtained by Judicial Watch also revealed that top Justice Department official Bruce Orr maintained contact with Steele for at least six months after Steele was fired by the FBI for unauthorized media contacts in November of 2016. The records further confirm that Orr knew of Steele's anti-Trump bias before the 2016 election. This is just the tip of the iceberg, a quote from Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham speaking to Sean Hannity. I know personally there's a lot more out there, end quote. Well, the summaries of FBI interviews with Orr, known as 302s, indicated that Orr knew in September of 2016, a month before the initial FISA application to surveil the Trump campaign, that an individual with links to the dossier was desperate that Donald Trump not get elected and was passionate about him not being the U.S. president. Orr believes, uh, redacted, uh, wanted to blunt or foil the Kremlin's plans. The FBI document continued while recounting claims pushed by Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm behind the dossier that was funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and Democratic National Committee. A source close to the matter said that this had the effect of putting a senior Department of Justice official on notice that a witness source had an extreme bias. In 2018, the GOP-led House Intelligence Committee released a memo asserting that uh, Steele had told Orr he was desperate for Trump to lose the election. 
Just nine days before the FBI applied for its FISA warrant, bureau officials were battling with a senior Justice Department official who had continued concerns about the possible bias of a source pivotal to the application, according to internal FBI text messages uh, uh, previously obtained. Well, uh, it has been confirmed that a senior State Department official, Kathleen Kavalek, met with Steele and documented his political motives in writing prior to the FISA uh, warrant approval, particularly that Steele's client was keen to see his anti-Trump materials come to light prior to the election. Kavalek forwarded her written notes in which she also pointed out that some of Steele's claims were apparently false to a senior FBI executive. Nonetheless, the FISA warrant application went through in October 2016 with multiple renewals. While the FISA records are heavily redacted, it doesn't appear that the FBI's documentation about Steele's bias was ever shared with the FISA court. That investigation continues. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Don Everts. He's the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, President Trump on Thursday... Uh, said Thursday, rather, that National Counterterrorism Center Director Joseph McGuire would become acting director of the National Intelligence, effective the 15th, that's tomorrow, when current director of National Intelligence Dan Coats is set to leave the administration. By the way, that's Wednesday, not tomorrow. The president also announced that uh, Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Sue Gordon, will leave that position on the same day. Admiral McGuire has a long and distinguished career in the military, retiring from the U.S. Navy in 2010. The president tweeted he commanded a at every level, including the Naval Special Warfare Command. He has also served as a National Security Fellow at Harvard University. I have no doubt he will do a great job, end quote. Well, Coates also praised McGuire, saying in a statement that he had a long and distinguished career and will lead the intelligence community with distinction. The president nominated McGuire, a leader of the U.S. Navy SEAL community, as director of the center on the 18th of June, or excuse me, June of 2018, and he was confirmed by the Senate on uh, December 2018. Trump praised Gordon as a great professional with a long and distinguished career. I've gotten to know Sue over the past two years and have developed great respect for her. He went on to say, despite the president's praise, it was clear that she wasn't going to be named acting director or the nom- be nominated to replace Coates as the new director. In a two-paragraph letter, Gordon thanked the president for the opportunity to serve the nation as deputy national intelligence director for two years. As uh, you ask um, a new leader team to take the helm, I will resign my position effective the 15th of August 2019 and will subsequently retire from federal service. She said she was confident in what the U.S. intelligence agencies had accomplished and what they were poised to do going forward. I have seen it in uh, action firsthand for more than 30 years, she wrote. Know that our people are our strength and they will never fail you or the nation. You are in good hands, end quote. The letter was accompanied by a note that read, Mr. President, I offer this letter as an act of respect and patriotism, not preference. Uh, You should have your team. Godspeed, Sue. It's unclear if the president, who has uh, had an uneven relationship with the intelligence agencies since taking office, will also nominate McGuire to formally replace um, Coates. We'll continue to follow that story. And the administration on Monday issued a long-awaited rule strengthening the ability of federal officials to deny green cards to immigrants deemed likely to rely on government aid. 
Officials describe the so-called public charge rule as a way to ensure those granted permanent residency are self-sufficient and protect taxpayers in the process. The principles driving it as an old American value and that self-sufficiency. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Acting Director Ken Cuccinelli said in an interview, it is a core principle, the American dream itself, and it's one of the uh, things that distinguishes us and it's central to the legal history of the U.S. back in the into the 1800s. Uh, It will also have the long-term benefit of protecting taxpayers by ensuring people who are immigrating to this country don't become public burdens, that they can stand on their own two feet as immigrants in years past have done. He said it's not only a recipe for their success, but for America's success growing out of our immigration system. Well, the updated rule will better define and expand the factors that can be considered to deny an applicant on those grounds, while the public charge inadmissibly inadmissibility rather standard has long been part of the u.s immigration law the term has also been formally defined in statute the new rule which will also go into effect on the 15th of october will define public charge as an immigrant who receives one or more designated public benefits for more than 12 months within a 36 month period those benefits include supplemental security income or ssi temporary assistance for needy families as well as most forms of medicaid and supplemental nutrition assistance Assistance programs, or SNAP, commonly known as food stamps. The rule expands the number of benefits that can be considered from um, interim guidance issued in 1999. Those factors will be considered along with standard considerations such as age, health, financial assets, and education. While Cuccinelli's USCIS is the lead agency, similar filters will be used at the State Department for those applying for visas from abroad and Border Patrol. Cuccinelli said that the rule is not so much about limiting successful applications, noting that President Trump has sworn in more new citizens on an annual basis than were sworn in during the tail end of former President Barack Obama's administration, as it is about providing clarity on both the USCIS staff in charge of enforcing the law and also to immigrants about what benefits will factor into the public charge uh, determination. There's no reason for anyone to be confused. It's easy to answer the question, is X covered or is it X uh, covered? Uh, This is a quick and easy answer to get uh, via the USCIS uh, website, he said. Well, the rule updates guidance from 1999 issued by what was then the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which stated that reliance on benefits such as SNAP and Medicaid would not be considered as part of a public charge evaluation. The difficulty we have had for the past 20 years under the 1999 guidance is that it was in anticipation of a rule that was never entered in and it was fairly minimalist guidance and it has not been particularly useful in the work we do at USCIS, he went on to say, calling the new rule a better and more thorough attempt. The rule is likely to cause significant backlash and has already uh, begun from Democrats and immigration rights groups who have warned that it may spook immigrants away from claiming the benefits they need, fearing it will lead to them being deemed inadmissible when requesting a green card. There are already signs that the rule could significantly reshape who is being granted permanent residency. Political reported last week that the State Department has been cracking down on potential public charges with rejections on public charge grounds surging 12,179 in fiscal 2019 to 1,033 
in fiscal 2016. It also demonstrates the extent to which the Trump administration is moving its immigration policies beyond simply tackling immigration, uh, illegal immigration, instead questioning the status quo of the legal immigration system as it is held since uh, the 1969 Immigration and Nationality Act. Cuccinelli, who was named acting director of the agency in June, said that the rule is entirely in line with the the president keeping his promise to make the immigration system work better for America. We're going to uh, take a break in just a couple of minutes when we uh, return uh, with uh, following news and traffic at the top of the hour. We're going to talk about the Department of Education uh, probing the athletic programs that are allowing transgender females to compete with girls. We're also going to look at a first grade teacher telling California lawmakers that biology is not bigotry. Testifying before a California legislative committee last month, this first first grade teacher told lawmakers that she would take a bullet for any child, but she would not harm children by following the state's proposed gender identity training. Uh, she delivered the message to the Senate Education Committee last month in opposing uh, AB 493, a teacher training bill requiring teachers in schools to refer to LGBT identifying students uh, to supportive acti- activist organizations. Also, we'll talk about um, uh, a new surge of laws that would... Uh, uh, require that women uh, be informed that the abortion-inducing pill they might have taken might be reversible and that they have a right to that information. And if uh, time permits, we're also going to talk about um, uh, the movie that was uh, canceled, the Universal Pictures movie canceled, The Hunt, a satirical thriller about elites hunting self-described normal people amid a series of mass shootings and criticism that the film could increase Tensions. Now, it's fascinating to me because I'm hearing all kinds of people say that uh, movies and video games do not contribute to violence in this country. But the words of a single person, an individual occupying the White House, is solely responsible for the violence in our culture. We'll uh, try to get to that if time permits. Also want to remind you that Don Everts will be my guest in the five o'clock hour. He is the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. He's responding to and provides information from a recent Barna a study that uh, indicates whether or not uh, believers are having spiritual conversations and uh, contrasting that with uh, those who are not uh, followers of Christ and the kinds of spiritual conversations, in quotes, that they are having. Now, this differs uh, in some ways to witnessing or sharing one's faith um, or sharing the gospel, and we'll give him an opportunity to define what uh, what the phrase spiritual conversation means and whether or not, generally speaking, uh, believers are engaged in them. So all of that's uh, coming up in the next uh, hour of today's program. Also, we'll make reference to an article in Christianity Today regarding whether or not this is the century of the Great Commission omission, whether or not that we have lost or are losing this fervor to share the gospel abroad. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you. Clark Hilton is engineering. During this hour, we're going to talk with Don Everts. He is the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. And much of what he writes about in this very small and manageable book uh, is uh, is a derivative. 
How do I say that? Is a derivative of a Barna study indicating how or whether we're having spiritual conversations. It really is a fascinating uh, book. So we'll talk about that with him in our next segment. So stick around for that. Well, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is opening an investigation into whether female high school athletes are discriminated against when the state of Connecticut allowed males who identify as females to compete with them. The three high school girls pursuing the complaint include Selena Soul, who earlier this year missed qualifying for the 55-meter dash in the New England regionals. Two biological boys who identify as female were allowed to compete in Connecticut Girls' um, Indoor Track Championship, and these transgender females took first and second place in the event. Had the transgender athletes not been allowed to compete with the girls, Soul would have qualified for the regionals. And uh, that would have made all the difference for her, not just in that singular race, but whether or not she would be scouted by um, schools who are looking to give girls scholarship. Now, according to the letter sent by the Office of Civil Rights about its decision to take up the case, it is examining the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference's transgender participation follow, uh, policy rather, for possible Title X violation. Um, or Title IX, rather, in discriminating against girls. Now, the state policy allows athletes to participate in boys' or girls' sports according to their gender identity, no matter their biological sex. Title IX is a federal law created to protect equal education opportunities for women and girls, including the athletics. Schools can also lose federal funds if they don't comply. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom, that represents Seoul, said in a press release that the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference's policy regularly results in boys outperforming and displacing girls in competitive high school track events across Connecticut. Well, the three girls' complaint alleges that the Glastonbury Board of Education denied equal athletic benefit and opportunities to girls because of the transgender policy and its failure to request that the state conference change the policy. Also, federal officials are investigating the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference and the Glastonbury School District for allegedly... Uh, alleged retaliation, rather, against particular parents and their daughters for complaining about that policy. Now, with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom, which is, as you may know, a nonprofit Christian legal aid organization, the parents of Seoul and the two other girls who are unnamed, um, who filed the federal complaint in June on behalf of their daughters in the Department of Education will be heard. Now, Christina Holcomb, legal counsel for the nonprofit, said that in June that it hopes to restore a level playing field for Selena and girls in general. Girls like Selena should never be forced to be spectators in their own sports, but unfortunately that is exactly what's taking place when you allow biological males to complete, uh, compete in sports uh, that have been set aside and specifically designed for women like Selena. Well, Title IX was designed to ensure that girls have a fair shake at athletics and are not denied the opportunity to participate at the highest levels of competition. We'll continue to follow that story. In fact, we're working on a conversation with Alliance Defending Freedom, hoping to get a bit more insight into uh, this challenge that has much broader implications outside of Connecticut. And testifying before a California legislative committee last month, first grade teacher Rachel Olson. She told lawmakers there that she would take a bullet for any kid, but she wouldn't harm kids by following the state's proposed gender identity training. Rachel Olson delivered the message to the Senate Education Committee last month in opposition to AB 493, 
a teacher training bill that requires teachers and schools to refer LGBT identifying students to supportive LGBTQ activist organizations, provide them with LGBTQ peer groups and create school wide programs urging the student body to support the LGBTQ identities of students. Olson's views received a chilly reception, not surprisingly, in the California legislature. Well, in her July 10th testimony, she recounted the gender training she recently received from Queerly Elementary, her um, Moranga School District's contracted LGBT trainer. I was told, and I'm quoting, I was told to use preferred pronouns to address students, to stop referring to students by their biological genders as boys and girls, and to teach sexual orientation and various gender identities. The 20-year teacher veteran told lawmakers on the Senate Education Committee, all of which seeks to coerce teachers and students to accept and express ideas about gender and gender identity that may violate their individual beliefs and conscience, especially those who subscribe to the gender binary, uh, which is rooted in objective biology as opposed to subjective thoughts or feelings. Biology is not bigotry. She went on. Uh, to say, well, first grade teacher Rachel Olson and psychologist Dr. Laura Haynes testified before the committee on the 10th in the California Education Committee. Olson also argued that AB 493 infringes upon the constitutional rights of teachers and students. This bill may violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which requires government neutrality on religion. LGBTQ training often casts aspersions upon sincerely held religious belief of many public school educators, Olson said. She also referenced a recent U.S. Supreme Court opinion against a California law that reiterated its First Amendment principle. The government may not compel individuals to express ideas or thoughts with which they disagree. Tolerance is a two-way street. Families and students who have different views on sexuality and gender then are promoted by AB 493. For example, those who affirm the gender binary must have their beliefs tolerated in our public schools. That is the law, and it is the right thing to do. Well, testifying with Olson against AB 493 was psychologist Dr. Laura Haynes, who explained the dangers of affirming the gender confusion of minors as this bill requires. Ten professional organizations say LGBTQ feelings are not just biologically born that may um, that, uh, that way or who someone is. There are psychological and social influences, too, Haynes told the committee. She went on to say LGBTQ and questioning feelings commonly diminish or resolve for some minors by adulthood, but social affirmation by teachers and peers that AB 493 mandates lock in LGBTQ feelings that otherwise would have resolved for many. Haynes also explained the horrifying medical problems that can result if teachers lock in transgender uh, transgender. Uh, students saying locking in transgender identities sends students down a treatment path of hormones and surgeries, leading to loss of sexual pleasure, fertility, breasts and reproductive organs and higher rates of psychotic, uh, rather psychiatric hospitalizations, deaths from heart disease and cancer and a 19 times more uh, completed suicides. Do you want to be responsible for this? She said. Well, after Olson and Haynes uh, finished their testimony, the chair of the Senate Education Committee, Senator Connie uh, Leva, uh, disregarded their arguments. Instead, she responded by saying, as a proud mother of a gay daughter, I find a lot of what the opposition said to be quite offensive. And I think that if we are as a society, uh, do not learn about other people. That is when we have bullying and when we have problems. I would put my daughter up against anyone's straight daughter. We have a daughter that is straight. They're both wonderful young women and who um, she loves should not change anything about the way she lives her life. Again, completely disregarding 
the arguments being made about the Constitution, biology, science, and so on. AB 493 was approved by the Senate Education Committee on the 10th. Senators voted 6-0 with one senator not voting. Um, uh, as AB 493 is now pending before the Senate Appropriations Committee with a hearing date set today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 17 minutes after 5 o'clock. We'll be back with Don Everts, The Reluctant Witness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Don Everts, grew up, well, he assumed that spiritual conversations are always painful and awkward, but his surprising and sometimes embarrassing stories affirm what scripture and the latest research tell us, that spiritual conversations can actually be a delight. With original research from the Barna Group on spiritual conversations in the digital age, his book offers fresh insight and best practices on how to become eager conversationalists. The book is titled The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. And I know some of you are already skeptical. Yeah, right. We call them spiritual conversations now. It was witnessing before. Are we talking about the same thing? We'll uh, discuss it all with Don Everts. He is a reluctant, is reluctant rather, to call himself an evangelist. But for decades, he's found himself talking about Jesus with all sorts of skeptical and curious people. He is a writer for Lutheran Hour Ministries and associate pastor of uh, Bonhomme Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. He has also been a speaker and a trainer for Alpha and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His many books include Jesus with Dirty Feet, I Once Was Lost, and Breaking the Huddle. He joins us today to talk about the latest, The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Georgine. I look forward to it. Yeah. Well, spiritual conversation. Now, is that the 21st century way of of uh, replacing the word witnessing, which so often strikes fear in the hearts of those who are called to do so? Well, yes and no. Uh, I, I agree that evangelism is the E word, uh, and even <laughs> witness, the W word, uh, can be daunting because of some of what we've seen happen uh, in the name of evangelism or mm-hmm. witness. Uh, but for the sake of the book and even the uh, the research that we did, spiritual conversations was broader. So uh, it was defined as any conversation you have with anyone about your faith or your lack of faith. And so that could be that that is inclusive of witnessing conversations, but it also includes, you know, talking with your spouse on the way home from church. What do you think of the sermon? Uh, it also includes sitting in your household and talking with your kids about, uh, you know, the the Bible lesson you read together. Uh, so it's a broader term, uh, which which is actually kind of sobering because part of what the research showed us uh, is that Christians aren't just witnessing less, uh, but they're having fewer spiritual conversations uh, of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Well, this um, is uh, largely informed. Your book is largely informed by research that uh, uh, that Barna has done along with uh, Lutheran Hour Ministries. It's not the first time Lutheran Hour Ministries has uh, done a survey. Twenty five years ago, they did similar uh, study that uh, revealed to us how people are engaging in these kinds of conversations. But talk a little bit about the, the work that was most recently done and how that helps us better understand where we stand in our culture, as well as um, moving us forward in terms of how to engage in these kinds of conversations. Yeah, great. So uh, Lutheran Hour and Barna, they had, as you mentioned, they did a study 25 years ago 
Uh, and then in 2018, they did a nationwide uh, survey, qualitative, quantitative, all these really, really smart people at Barna <laughs> who know how to do this, uh, to, to, to find out kind of what's the state of our spiritual conversations. And there was really uh, sobering findings uh, <laughs> that really caught us up short. And there were really hopeful findings as well that, that, that gave us great hope for, uh, for the cause of the kingdom of God in our own time. So uh, let me give you an example, Georgine. Mm-hmm. One of the really sobering findings uh, was that 89% or no, part, pardon me, pardon me, three quarters. So three quarters of all Christians in the United States have nine or fewer spiritual conversations every year. And remember, I'm not talking about uh, witnessing conversations where a Christian is, you know, summarizing the gospel for a non-Christian. Any spiritual conversation with anyone at all, nine or fewer a year, that's three quarters of all Christians. That's stunning mm-hmm. uh, to me. That really surprised us that we, have, we just aren't talking about our faith in ways that we used to. Uh, we also found out that when we do talk about our faith, particularly with non-Christians, we bring up the Bible less. We bring up the benefits of being a follower of Jesus less, uh, and we bring up other people's beliefs and how they interact with the truths of the of the gospel less. So the, the, it's sobering, Georgine. Uh, the, in, in a way, the cat's got our tongue, and that became a focus of the research. Why have we grown silent? Why have we lost our voice? Um, and, and what hopeful uh, findings are there as well? But that gives you an example of some of the kinds of things that we were learning. Yeah, it really is um, is fascinating. You begin in the introduction um, of your book, The Reluctant Witness, with a story when you were uh, an intern uh, about a, f- a, a trip on an airplane in which you were reading a book on evangelism and your experience in just wrestling with whether or not you should engage in conversation with a person you were seated next to. Can you recall that for our listeners? Oh, yeah. I wish it was an airplane. It was actually a bus. A bus. <laughs> it, was, it was a much longer. It was a 15-hour bus ride. And, and you know, the sad truth is for 13 and a half hours, I didn't say a word to the person in the, in the seat right next to me. You know, our shoulders and elbows would touch from time to time, but I never talked. And that whole while I was, it's true, I was reading a book about evangelism, about how much our God loves people and wants to reach out to people and how he calls us to be a part of that work with him. And after 13, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, I, I am a reluctant witness. And, um, but even after, even me after 13 and a half hours, just the irony of that and the, you know, reading from the Bible and, and, and from this evangelism book I was reading about how joyful it is to, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news while I'm ignoring the person next to me. And after 13 and a half hours, I, I, I just, I, it was too much. And I just turned, I was convicted and I just, and I said, hi, <laughs> after 13 and a half hours. And, and, you know, and incredible things actually transpired over the next hour and a half in the conversation. But that story has really, it, it has reminded me uh, of a couple of things. One, that God really is into people. And he really does call us to interact with them. And if we just turn and say, hi, you never know what might happen. And the, the other thing it really encourages me of is if, if God can take someone like me, you know, so reluctant, so shy, so hesitant to talk, and he can bring me to a place where I've been able to talk with people about everyday things and also about the faith, 
then there's hope for anyone. Mm. I think there might be something of a misunderstanding about what uh, what we are called to, the, you know, bringing good news. It's not a one-sided conversation in which in the space of three to five minutes, you've given the four spiritual laws, you've given your entire testimony, and then press right. them to make some kind of decision. I love the idea of a spiritual conversation in which you engage someone. It's a two-way conversation. And in the natural mm-hmm. course of things, because your faith is your life, it becomes a part of that conversation. That's right, Georgine. And, uh, you know, one of the hopeful findings, and, and which really backs up what you just said, is so three quarters of us are not talking about our faith much at all, mm-hmm. maybe once every month and a half. But a quarter of all Christians, and this is part of the hopeful thing, are, are having lots of spiritual conversations. And, and the, the data folks took those quarter of the respondents, quarter of all Christians, and they kind of broke down the data. You know, is there anything unique about those folks? that maybe can help us learn how we can all become reluctant or eager conversationalists like them. And one of the indications in the findings was that they are open to kind of graciously adapting to where their conversation partner is, what their spiritual posture is. In other words, they don't have, they are less likely to have like a memorized gospel summary and every time they're in a conversation with a non-Christian, they kind of puke out that summary, you know, kind of, <laughs> whether it's awkward, whether it fits in the conversation or not. Uh, reluctant conversationalists are actually more likely to do that, which may tell us why they don't have many conversations, because they think that's what it means. Eager conversationalists, the, the Christians among us who are having lots of spiritual conversations, uh, they, they really they adapt to where their conversation partner is, and they're open to see what God does. They're not trying to force it. They're they um, are really responsive uh, to to where their conversation partner is. And, and that that is really hopeful and I think encouraging for the rest of us that we can kind of, it breaks down some of these myths of what evangelism really is. And, you know, I have to summarize the gospel. That has to be the first word out of my mouth and I have to force them to, you know, accept it. Well, no, nothing like that. In fact, the folks who are having fruitful, regular, joyful conversations are they're just starting up a trailhead of a conversation to see where God may take it. Well, and that that tells me you don't have to have a scorecard in your pocket or your purse. You know, I've I've said everything I needed to say. I can move on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We, we used to have that, you know, oh, I shared the gospel with someone. Have you shared the gospel with anyone? You know, like we put these notches on our belt. And, and particularly these days where there's so much distrust in our culture for Christians, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, etc., you know, one of the, I think we need a new notches on our belt. Uh, namely, I built trust with a non-Christian today. Mm. You know, I engendered trust. I gained a hearing. I built a bridge. Uh, because part of what the data tells us, you, you want to know, uh, so non-Christians, who they want to talk with about faith matters. It's not religious professionals like me. <laughs> <laughs> It's their friends. They want to they, they hear about faith from people that they know and that they trust. And so in our day and age, building trust with someone, building genuine friendships with non-Christians is, is, is an evangelistic activity. Mm-hmm. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Don Everts. Uh, the book is, uh, I should say Everts, the book is titled The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Don Everts. He's the author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. And yes, that is the correct word to use when we're talking about uh, spiritual conversations and how we can engage in them in a way that is a delight is the subject of this book. Now, in um, The Reluctant Witness, you begin with um, by encouraging your readers uh, to have an uh, to take an honest and uncomfortable, perhaps self-evaluation of the state of our witness. And then in the first chapter, uh, you encourage your readers um, to uh, uh, to reckon with one particular fear that's causing many of us to avoid these kinds yeah. of, of uh, conversations. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it's the fear of offense. You know, when, when mm-hmm. uh, in the surveys, when we talk to people, why don't you have more spiritual conversations, the, one, the ones who didn't? You know, what keeps you from engaging in more conversations about your faith? The number one response, there were a number of responses, and it's all fascinating. We can get into all of it, Georgine, but, but the number one response, by a long shot, was the fear that if I talk about my faith, it will bring up tension or an argument. And so in our day and age, there's something about the plurality of our age, the secularness of our age, that there's this fear of offense, that if I'm, even if I'm just genuinely sharing about my faith and my experience of my faith, uh, there's this fear that that is going to offend the people around me. And, you know, there's, there, in some ways, in, in our current age, there's no greater uh, transgression than being offensive mm-hmm. in, in that way. And so that, it, it's really like a cat that's got our tongue. Uh, uh, and, and it's like we're figuring out how to navigate uh, this season. You, you know, Paul talked about there will be times when the, gos- when the gospel is in season and there'll be times when it's out of season. And as our culture is becoming uh, more postmodern, post-Christian, the faith is less in season. And so we have a lot of people around us who don't share our faith and who aren't excited about Jesus like we are. <laughs> and, and with that has come this fear. Uh, and so that is, that's something we all have to reckon with and, and really get honest about how much we are holding our tongue, how much we are keeping from our friends a really important part of our life because we're afraid of what might happen if we bring it up. Hmm. Now, the, the scripture says that the gospel is offensive to those who don't believe, but there's a difference between the gospel itself and the difficulty that some hmm. might have in embracing it and being offensive as we're presenting the gospel. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, 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 I, and that's one of the other reasons that people give for not engaging in more spiritual conversations is because of awkward or argumentative or mean-spirited ways that they have seen other Christians talk about their faith. And so they have that kind of bad example. It leaves a bad taste in their mouth, and, and it sort of leaves them saying, well, I don't, I don't want to be party to that. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, so, so you're right. Uh, and the, the, other, the other good news, though, is that even though there's this huge fear of offense, which, ha- which has silenced the church in, in a lot of ways, the good news that was revealed in the findings is that we probably have less to be afraid of than we imagine. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when we talked with non-Christians and we surveyed non-Christians, uh, and this was interesting, non-Christians and Christians alike, the overwhelming majority, are glad they had their last spiritual conversation. So even non-Christians are glad they had their last uh, 
spiritual conversation. And when we drilled down and said, was there conflict in, in, or tension in that spiritual conversation, whether there was or wasn't actually did not move the needle on how glad they were for the conversation. In other words, even if tension does come up, it doesn't ruin the conversation. We, we have this feeling that it's going to ruin the friendship or it's going to ruin the conversation. It actually doesn't. And the overwhelming majority of non-Christians say they were glad for the last spiritual conversation they had. When, when we ask Christians and non-Christians, think of, think of the most recent spiritual conversation you've been a part of. What are the emotions that you felt during that time? And, and the top three that come up uh, are joy, laughter, and peace. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So, so it turns out that people actually really enjoy um, spiritual conversations. Um, so there's less to be afraid of uh, th- than we thought, and, and that's good news. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. In fact, in your third chapter, you uh, take a look at the five most popular myths that most of us have about spiritual conversations, that being yeah. one of the, the very important. Can you share just one other of these misconceptions that we might have that, that make us reluctant to share our faith? Absolutely. Uh, one of the myths is that if I'm in a spiritual conversation, particularly with a non-Christian, I'm going to be called upon to give the exact right answer to all of their questions. And if I get the answer wrong, that's it. You know, their their eternity could hang in the balance, right? Or I will I will discredit Christianity or something like that. Uh, and it turns out people are not actually looking for a wise guru on the mountaintop who is going to kind of regurgitate the perfect answer. Rather, what they're more interested in is sort of an awkward Sherpa who's going to walk along with them and walk along the path with them and say, well, let's try this and let's look at this. So people are more interested in people who honor their questions, take their questions seriously and, and, uh, and with dignity and say, well, let, let's look for answers together. And, and he, you know, here's, here's what I read in the Bible. Here's what I find. And so that's, you know, I've known a lot of people a lot of people who are afraid to bring up their faith because they feel like they're going to be asked some way mm-hmm. tricky question, and, and that keeps them quiet. And the reality is people don't want pristine answers. They want a friend who's willing to get honest with them. Yeah, and a, a faith that seems approachable. You know, a regular person like most That's of right. us can actually walk <laughs> it out. <laughs> That's well, right. Finally, in the last two chapters of uh, your book, The Reluctant Witness, um, you focus on uh, people who are eager conversationalists. Now, we might interpret that to mean these are people who have a natural bent toward engaging in spiritual conversation. That may not necessarily be the case. You gave yourself as an example of someone who is yeah. rather shy, but but yet have had these encouraging and wonderful conversations. Tell us a little bit about those who would uh, you would characterize as eager conversationalists. And then in the, the last chapter, how we might um, practice for ourselves these conversational habits that can actually be added to um, what we lack. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the, the, the really good news is when you take these quarter of all Christians and, and, and you dive deep into the, their answers to all the questions and the interviews we had with them, uh, and what, you know, do they have, what do they have in common? That's what we looked for. The people who are having lots of spiritual conversations. And what we did not find is that there's some demographic feature that they share, like they're all female or they're all extroverted or they're all from the South or something like that. Because if that was the case, well, then there's no luck for the rest of us, right? But that's not what we found. What we found is that they have certain attributes, certain beliefs, uh, uh, certain habits that they share that any Christian 
can actually grow in. And so that's really encouraging. So for an, I'll give you a couple examples. Yeah. Eager conversationalists expect and look for spiritual conversations. So they, they, they don't think that spiritual conversations are only for like really, really special times or really, really special places uh, and, and religious contexts. They believe that spiritual conversations happen in everyday life. And so they're on the lookout for them. And, and we can be the same way, right? So I can go through my day and say, God, I wonder if there's any spiritual, any people you're going to have me run into today. Uh, or uh, they gently push through awkward moments. That's another thing that marks uh, eager conversationalists, that if something does get awkward while talking about the faith, they don't run for the hills. They just kind of gently push through it. Uh, and so we can do the same. Uh, there's been whole books written about the fact that actually things get more interesting for everyone involved if we're willing to kind of sit with a little awkwardness in a conversation rather than recoiling from it. And so that, that, that's another example. Um, they also understand uh, that God wants to use them to share their faith. And so eager conversationalists are more likely to have a self-perception that part of what it means to be an everyday Christian is to be open to sharing my faith with other people. Whereas reluctant conversationalists view it as the job of the church to share the gospel, not their own. And so we can follow in their footsteps and, you know, reckon with Bible passages where Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, uh, you will be my witnesses, etc. So those are ways, th- those are things we all can grow in. Uh, and I've even experienced uh, people who've been interacting with this research and had their eyes opened to some of these things who, who try uh, to get into more conversations than they have, and they realize well, it didn't kill me. It was actually really fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned, your last chapter is on engaging in everyday conversations with, you know, uh, regular people having these spiritual conversations. And I wish we had time to go into that. But there's uh, yeah. there's so much packed into this little book, The Reluctant Witness. I would encourage our um, our listeners to pick up a copy because I think you'll find some encouragement and perhaps a bit of courage in reading other stories. And what's really true about um, people you might, in fact, engage in these conversations with. Again, The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations. Don Everts, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's been a delight to have a spiritual conversation with you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment with our last segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in light of my conversation with Don Everts, author of The Reluctant Witness, Discovering the Delight of Spiritual Conversations, I thought this article in Christianity Today by Ed Stetzer was rather interesting as it pointed toward missions, another way of having, as uh, we now put it, spiritual conversations, only in a different context. Well, he writes uh, with the headline, The Great Century of Missions Ended Over a Century Ago. Will our, a- our uh, age be the great century of omission? The people of God must boldly proclaim the gospel message both here and abroad. And again, Stetzer writes, people seem to be responding to the topic of missions or missionary work in one of a few different ways today. More recently, our culture has begun to see missions as a controversial reality. We saw that with Josh Chow in the aftermath of his journey to reach unreached people groups living in territory under the possession of India. Chow's story, including news of his death, was 
uh, broadcasted all over the world. It was fascinating to see how the world responded to this incident and contrast the news of uh, to the news of Jim Elliot and his companion's death so many decades ago. Elliot was heralded as a hero, and his story has spread across the front cover of Life magazine. He and those who journeyed with him to Ecuador spawned the growth of a whole new generation of young people eager to follow in their footsteps and reach unreached people groups with the gospel. With Chow, the situation has been quite the opposite. Instead of heralded for his courage and sacrifice, the media uh, took a much more critical approach. He writes, Stetzer is a missiologist. He says Chow could have changed some aspects of his approach. That's easy to second guess at this point. But from the mo- for the most part, Chow was not the crazed and irresponsible adventurer that the media portrayed him to be. He did have many supporters, including the mission agency All Nations, that sent him. They say that he spent time in careful consideration of the risks he was taking in journeying to this tribe and clearly desired to make a positive impact for the kingdom through his work. Despite this and other cases made in Chow's defense, our culture has largely remained unimpressed. In fact, uh, they were quite convinced that the idea of going to the other side of the world to tell people about Jesus is not only a waste of missionaries' life, but perhaps the lives of those to whom they journey as well. Some Christians even responded this way with Chow, arguing that people should be left to continue in their cultural practices and belief systems wherever they are. Others simply don't even consider sharing the gospel to be a priority. It's becoming clear that our churches in North America and perhaps the Western world as well have lost their once fervent passion for mission work. The great stories of global gospel proclamation we share are becoming more and more of an anathema. The great century of missions was an era from 1792 to 1910, when people had great enthusiasm for missionary endeavors. Such missionary work had widespread, though not universal, support, but not any longer. For example, while some churches are still involved with missions agencies, uh, with mission work rather, and agency are hard at work, many in the church are largely disengaged or worse, simply disinterested. If we're going to love and promote global missions to unreached people today, it will be in spite of the low enthusiasm in some churches and regardless of widespread disdain and, in some countries, active opposition. Some people hearing this respond by recognizing the importance of renewing our efforts to proclaim the gospel on the world stage. And I think this really is the only proper response. The spiritual condition of those like the tribe that Chow wished he had uh, could reach uh, was really a burden Um, even from the comfort of our Western churches. Jesus' words to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, should convict us. That's found in Matthew 28, 19. And then Stetzer concludes, Our churches should provoke us to love and good deeds, and that includes supporting people who are going and doing this gospel-sharing work in faraway places. Even more than that, churches should be places that themselves are educating congregations about the work that missionaries are doing and encouraging individuals who may be sensing a call to engage in such important work themselves. The stories of men like John Chow need not be rewritten by a culture that is largely critical of the notion that people in other places even needed to know Christ in the first place. Instead, it is for us, the people of God, to take up the baton and continue to boldly proclaim the gospel message both here and abroad. If we don't get a greater passion for missions, this will be the great century of omission. Again, Ed Stetzer writing for Christianity Today. He holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. 
and he serves as the dean of the School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership there. He's the executive director of the Billy Graham Center and publishes uh, church uh, leadership resources through Mission Group, a rather interesting consideration in view of our previous conversation. Taking a look at the rest of this week, on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Carlos and Rosemary Evans. The book is titled Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. This is a remarkable story. There were pictures of uh, Carlos Evans prior to his uh, being commissioned to fight on behalf of the United States in the uh, war in the Gulf. Um, This strapping young man, um, clearly a, a physical specimen, Well, he lost his limbs in that melee, and we're going to talk about what happened next. Again, Carlos and Rosemary Evans will join us, Standing Together, the inspirational story of a wounded warrior and enduring love. And the title, I should mention, is particularly poignant because he lost both legs serving his country. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Bob Merritt. He is the author of Done With That, Escape the Struggle of Your Old Life. Now, we know that Scripture says that when we come to faith in Christ, that everything is made new, and yet we struggle with how is that the case, given the fact that we still struggle in some of the areas um, that we had prior to making a profession of faith. Bob Merritt will join us to talk about uh, how to escape the struggle of our old life. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Leslie Montgomery, the faith of Mike Pence. Yes, that's governor, or just governor, former governor, now vice president, Mike Pence. He's been a figure of uh, considerable controversy, primarily because of his Christian faith. The fact that he is a follower of Christ, the fact that he takes that seriously and applies that to how he conducts uh, his um, himself, even in his official capacities, has uh, made him a figure of derision. We'll talk with Leslie Montgomery about the book she's written about the vice president, the faith of Mike Pence. That's coming up on Thursday. So that's our lineup for the week. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.